Welcome to Filled to Flourish with Luke and Lauren. Where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Welcome back. Uh, we are so glad to have you here. We have made it to Thailand, the country where we live and serve and haven't been able to be in for almost a year. Um, we're in quarantine, actually, waiting to get back to our home. And we uh, just thank you for your patience as we haven't produced any content um, recently, but we are so excited about the content that we have to share with you today. Um, we have interviewed a friend, Mary Rosenberger. She is a mom of three, and she has an amazing blog where she shares her story um, the blog is called wearetheoutsiders.com. I encourage you to check it out if you want to hear more about her story. But we have the awesome chance to share face-to-face, well, Zoom-to-Zoom with her. And she's just an amazing human. And we can't wait for you all to hear her share about something that is so important as we talk. This is a two-part series. So make sure you check out the next episode when we produce that. Yeah. And we are just really excited for this opportunity and that our travel is behind us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last time we said we were going to have an episode on marriage and mental illness, and we're going to put that a pause as we traveled. And we uh, got to have this interview with Mary and it's a a touchy topic, um, a sensitive topic. So I just encourage you as you're listening to it, just to be aware of yourself, uh, scan your body, see what you're feeling. It's about spiritual abuse. Um, many of us have experienced spiritual abuse, so it can be very triggering. So I just encourage you to, to um, as you're listening, um, maybe take breaks, just be conscious of how you're being affected and care for yourself well mm-hmm. during this time. Like Lauren said, it is a two-part uh, series, so there's a lot of material. Um, it's really good stuff, and we're just very thankful for Mary and her willingness to share her story. So I'm going to start with a, a quote. Um, Mary has written her story on her blog, um, but I, I, I pulled a few of quotes from her story, and I'm going to start with one now, and then we will bring her on. I always got the sense that our pastor didn't quite get me. Sometimes I could feel him watching me, not necessarily in a creepy way, but with a sense of not knowing what was going on in my head. He would say that to me, actually, that he never really knew what I was thinking. I guess that was my superpower. Shrink into myself, pretend I wasn't there, and don't give him the chance to get to know me. If he tried to get into a conversation with me, I would give him the shortest answers possible. Remember also that I had never ever known a life without this man. I didn't hate him. I really believed he was a man of God to be respected above anyone else, but I was utterly terrified of him. Let me be clear that I am not exaggerating that. I was terrified of him, but it never occurred to me to question him because I believed he was sent by God to be over my life. So, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. We just think the world of you and can't wait to hear more of your story as we chat about it. Yeah. It's amazing. We just met you like a week ago, (laughs) but we do feel like we've known you for a while and just really respect you and are 
looking forward to our time together hearing your story. So let's just jump in. Yeah, um, where do we begin? Uh, this is this is a big a big job, but no pressure. Um, why don't you just start with from the beginning, from you as a, a baby, the family you were born into, and um, generally the ministry you were a part of. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, the story for me would start before I was born um, with my parents who were not raised as believers. That's also kind of an important piece of the puzzle. And I believe even ties into just the general theme of spiritual abuse is that my generation, a lot of us were raised by people that weren't brought up in the church, which maybe would give room for their ignorance of what they've done. But anyway, so my parents were not brought up um, particularly religious. My mom was actually a Satanist before she was a Christian. So other side of the spectrum completely. And they gave their lives to Christ and then in the seventies, and then they joined a small tiny little church um, in like Syracuse, New York, where they were kind of discipled in this really amazing, almost Orthodox church environment, just very close, very whatever. So they surrendered their lives to what they would call lordship. There's going to be a lot of Christianese in this episode, (laughs) just so you know, you know, they surrendered to what they would call, you know, we're going to do whatever you want us to do with our lives, Lord. And then coincidentally, a pastor came to that church a couple of weeks later and was recruiting people for a new ministry that he started. He claimed that it was going to be a home for troubled youth and he was looking for people to work there. And so my parents um, went and joined this ministry. They were part of the founding families. I think there were maybe four or five other families that were there at the time. So they were they were the bones of this ministry. And my dad especially was very, very close with this pastor. He talked about their bond being like the David Jonathan bond. And I think he, I think that that was my dad's pure heart of just, you know, seeing this vision because this pastor was extremely charismatic and extremely, you know, just had that air about him that you just kind of say, I'm on board with whatever you're doing. Yeah. Who doesn't want to help trouble teenagers? And, you know, there's, there's such a mixture of <laughs> all the feelings. Um, but anyway, so they went there in 1980 and had my sister in that year. And then my brother came along in 85 and then I was born in 87. So um, by the time I entered the picture, this was a fully functioning ministry youth home Um, kids would come there between the ages of 13 and 19, they would commit to stay for a year. And the program was set up kind of like a boarding school, but also like troubled teen, you know, all the classic troubled teen, almost industry. It's awful that it's an industry, but not quite as abusive as some of the other horror stories you would hear from kids that got like abducted in the middle of the night and taken out to the mountains of Utah, you know, like not quite that bad. Yeah. Um, probably because it was so Christ centered that it maybe it saved it from being like that. 
but definitely some super abusive things going on in, in the program itself, just the punishment mm -hmm. styles, the, it was corporal punishment, it was isolation techniques, you know, all of that. And honestly, I can't, I'm not the person to share necessarily about the program because I wasn't in it. And I'm not even the person to share necessarily my parent trying to undo all of the questions of my parents and how were they called to be there were they not right. called you know because it's not my story right. and so I can only tell what happened to me and I grew up as a little girl in this ministry and it was it was very enclosed the pastor was the head of everything and I think that that should have been a sign or a red flag that there was just one guy at the top of this pyramid. He had a board. My dad was technically on the board, but come to find out lots of years later when everything hit the fan, that it was all just fake and none of it was legal and it was all pretend. Like wow. that whole ministry, everything was just pretend. Like it's so weird to look back and think of like, wow, I never questioned the fact that all of the teachers in the school systems none of them went to college and our nurses never went to college and our counselors and the, the deans of the dorm were just program kids that decided to stay and you know like it was all fake it was all not real and from my perspective how could I have known any better like it's all I knew I went to school on campus there was a there was a little um, you know, Christian school in the basement of one of the buildings where the staff kids would go. And I had maybe a handful of friends that were my age. And we grew up believing that we were on the front lines, that we were, we were like elite Christians, yeah. that we were doing the most work, you know? And it's, like, as you talk now, there may be some listeners who are like, that sounds so extreme. How did they not know? Mm. But like you said, your parents were wanted to serve God. They wanted to have, they wanted to be a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And they were committed. Mm -hmm. And when you were born, your parents were already seven years into it. Mm -hmm. And there's this charismatic leader who's also seems to be passionate about helping people know God better. Yeah. And when we're in that experience, we're not, we're not questioning anything, right? Right. You're just looking, just okay, what is my role in this environment to do the best I can to serve God? And when there's somebody that you respect, you assume that I'm going to follow him and do what he's asked me to do. You're a kid. Mm -hmm. You're not looking for, you're not asking people for their degrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, your parents, yeah. they're not even in a position to do that. And so it's just amazing to hear your story. I hear your family just wanting to love God. Like what beautiful That's hearts to just want to serve. And, yeah. and and serve people who kind of outcast in, in society. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful yeah. desire that somebody saw and intentionally mm -hmm. manipulated. Mm. Their, their yeah. innocence, even as adults and young, like fairly young Christians, 
they yeah. they had a, a pure desire to serve God where he called them. And a older, more mature, quote unquote, Christian saw their zeal and passion to serve and manipulated. It really made them prime candidates. Right. That that vulnerability was like exactly what was needed. And I think about you saying the degree, like it was all fake. It's like the Truman Show or something. Right. Like no one's really yes. doing. <laughs> like, but if I, you think about it, the the need was not excellence and even training. The need was, can I control this person? Right. Yeah. I mean, talk. there's so much scripture against that. Like, if you just think about for a second, how much Jesus. Yes. zeroed in on these warnings and Paul mm -hmm. zeroed in on these warnings that there are going to be people mm -hmm. who are going to use your pure your pureness of heart and they're going to they're going to devour you. you yeah yeah, yeah. they're going to devour you like watch out <laughs> yeah and like and we've talked about uh, attachment in families and parents intentionality and their unintentionality to hurt hurt their children i just mm. hear as you're speaking a correlation of mm. this man being your parent's spiritual father and intentionally mm. in his brokenness using their desire for attachment their desire for affirmation desire for a place and and ministry yeah and just and to use that to get them to do what he wanted them to do to fulfill his needs rather than to fulfill yeah. their needs and God's God's heart. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just all of that into yeah. the story that is, is not so clear. And and as we stand looking back at it, mm -hmm. um, and I it just it's it's gotta be hard. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, especially over the last couple of years, I've I don't know. I think when I came out the other side, I, I just had the biggest question was, how did you let that happen to us? <laughs> how did you let that happen? We had pure hearts. Like what happened, you know? And it, and, but I think through those questions, I gained a bigger amount of grace for my parents and I could actually see the good that they intended for me. And, you know, my family is a very spiritual family. Like we have always, all of us managed to come out the other side of this with faith. And I, I, I owe that to my parents. Like you said, looking back at them in that church in Syracuse, they had pure hearts and they had a pure love. And I think that even amidst all the really awful doctrines and teaching that I was given, they gave, at least they did their job of instilling this purity of heart in me that, you know, even with all everything that was meant for harm for us, we've come out the other side. And, and I think that you don't see it when you're in the middle of it. And that's what, why, you know, how many times I've said, if you weren't there, you don't know, like you don't, if you've never been in a cult or a cultish <laughs> environment, it looks so foolish and so stupid. And you have these people that were fully, fully formed to doing things that they never thought they would ever do. Yeah. And it's like, when you're in abuse, you never see it. And that's exactly. why people don't leave and people right. don't, you know, it's like standing 
with your nose up against a painting. Like you just see this teeny yeah. little piece, which was their hearts to serve God and their hearts to help broken mm -hmm. people. And it blinded them to everything else that was going on. Wow. And especially for me, because I didn't have any wherewithal right. to compare it. Like I knew that there was a nut, there was a world out there. Like I knew, obviously I didn't think like we were the only people on earth, but I didn't, ugh, it's so hard to describe. I knew that it was out there, but it was like, almost like it was post-apocalyptic out there. Like it was almost like I was brought to believe that this bubble was like a, like a safe space yeah. where God was bringing his people to do his work and that you might go out there, but it's not good out there. <laughs> like those people are all deceived. They're wow. all, you know, so I was living life. Like I, I did things outside of the ministry a little bit, but it was still all pretty contained. And everything that I saw of the outside world was usually in the context of us traveling and ministering to people. So I only saw them as broken people and I had all the answers and mm -hmm. You know, oh. people on TV wearing tank tops and, you know, they, <laughs> just the legalistic. I mean, that's a whole nother to paint the picture of like what it was like in that atmosphere was that this pastor had ultimate authority over the program, which would kind of be normal in maybe like a boarding school headmaster kind of scenario. Like that's not necessarily unhealthy in and of itself, but that authority like bled into the staff families and he somehow created an environment where he could tell everybody how to dress and he could like the program kids had standards of dress and you know they couldn't have long sideburns they could again normal enough that when you're close enough to it it just looks like a boarding school of course right. well yeah I mean, naughty kids we shouldn't let them wear hoodies because whatever you know like Naughty kids need discipline, but for him to extend those rules over everybody and kids that were never put into that program, like that, you know, I didn't wear pants until I was maybe nine or 10 because he thought it was a sin for women to wear pants. So he wouldn't let any of his staff wear pants. And like that meant when we went on vacation in Florida, we were still abiding by his standards wow. for everything. And that uh, the movies we watched, the music we listened to, he would say in sermons that he was going to go to pick, remember pick a flick, that he was going to go to the, the video rental store and see what we were all renting, like privately as families. Like, and I'm sure that some of the adults that were sitting in the room were probably like, well, that's ridiculous. He can't do that. But nobody said that to me in my mind. I'm like, oh my God, like I thought he had the power to do that because again, I didn't know how it worked. And like, I didn't know that my pastor couldn't go into pickup like and get records. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like mm -hmm. normal things like that, I didn't understand. So I just thought he's like evil Santa. Like this guy is always gonna know what I'm doing. He's always gonna know what I'm thinking and I have to be accountable to him. And that's healthy somehow. Right, I mean, it's it kind of is a picture of it's a silly analogy but like uh fish in, in water they don't know they're swimming in water it's just what they do right right you, you don't know you're in a cult it's all you know that there's like spiritual abuse yeah it's it's just it's what you know this is what you taught so i don't know anything different so this is my normal right and that's 
that goes for all abuse. Like I would say that all abuse is spiritual abuse because let you know, it messes you up to be abused and have trauma, whether it's sexual or physical, your spirit is desecrated. Your spirit is, you know, but when you add in religious abuse, and I think that's what is so nuts because all of the damage, you can't see it. All of the damage is in your mind and it goes beyond like every reason for anything you ever do has this fear, this religious fear, which makes you completely unable to do anything. Like I, people that are abused in other ways, they can use substances to numb it, you know, but if you're religiously abused, you won't do that. Cause it's like, can't do that. You're not going to kill yourself. Wow. because You've been taught that you'll go to hell. If you do that, you can't seek counseling from a psychiatrist because you've been taught religiously that that's actually evil and that's gonna probably be a slippery slope so you're you're left completely alone and you don't know who to talk to and like it sucks (laughs) it totally sucks so what did that look like when you were a kid continue sharing more about being in that environment as a kid Mm. and how you wrestled with that like yeah coming to realize it seems like at some point you started to realize or maybe it was more actually you felt broken you didn't see the system as broken first you were the one who was broken yeah yeah oh yeah it's never anybody else's fault I never uh the the control that that man had and I hate to even give him so much energy in the story but yeah it's all because of him so you know he created this um this atmosphere I think when I was nine or ten his wife left him which was a pretty big deal in the ministry um it was his second wife oh wow (laughs) but nobody knew that he even had a wife before that so it's like now looking back, he, this is a pattern for this guy, but he didn't tell anybody about the previous pattern that he had been kicked out of a church in Rochester and filed for bankruptcy. Like none of that was told. It was, this is a fresh new thing I'm doing. And so when his first wife left, he fell in love with another woman that had come there with her husband to work in the ministry, convinced her husband that it was God's will for them to separate So that husband, they divorced, he left and he took that woman as his new wife. So that was, I was maybe nine or 10. So I don't have a ton of memories of the first or the second wife. I have more memories of the next one that they were kind of the couple. But the backstory to that was that that was so wrong. And and only a few families left at that point. And my dad was one of them because he was very close to him and he was a deacon and he was on the board. My dad went to him and, you know, basically said, you can't do this. Like, you cannot do this without having like consequences. And he fired my dad on the spot and well, terminated him was his word. Um, And because of, again, the purity of heart that my dad knew that he was supposed to be there and help the, and this was, this turned out to be what I would come to understand a a really popular cycle there where if the pastor was questioned he would fire them and and he would essentially say you've kicked yourself out of God's will 
And so that made this really unhealthy system where the staff people were absolutely terrified to be fired because that means like you're like outside the camp and you've been put out in the post-apocalyptic world. Nobody's there to help oh you. Gosh. So, I mean, my dad, you know, begged to stay. And I think that was kind of the first time that he put my dad in his place of where he thought his place should be. Like, no, you're not going to question me or I'm kicking your whole family out. Yeah. And so we stayed and, and a lot of people would say that that's, um, I don't know, but like, a lot of people have said that's kind of, they, they feel that's where God just like took his presence off of this guy. I don't believe that he does that, but you know, who knows? It seems like things really went downhill from that point. Um, in the heart of the pastor, I think that he just got really hardened and all the more just kind of made this atmosphere where you don't question him like you don't dare do that so that would make sense why me growing up as a kid and starting to you know my friends would leave out of nowhere like it was a really unstable environment for friendships because Mm. once you left you weren't like you couldn't communicate with the people that were outside of this ministry like absolutely not and so I had a lot of friends who's they left because their parents you know would be like ah, this is not good. We're leaving. And then as soon as they were gone, it, it just the, the lies that would be spread about those families, the, you know, everything. So that I never questioned my pastor. Like I never, ever, I just believed it all. I believed that they left and they were Satanists now, or like all these lies. I just believed it so that I, didn't want to talk to my friends, which is twisted. Cause you'd think, Oh, you know, this poor girl grew up in here and she lost her friends and she probably wanted to write them letters and like all this stuff. And as I got older, my heart was turned against them. Like yeah. I was a little soldier that did what I was taught to do. And so were my parents. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. You don't see it when you're in it, that you're just so conditioned. You'll never question him. And as I got to be a teenager, like that, was bad. It was, it was really, really bad. I don't know if you want to get into the teen years. Yeah, we would love to. I'm, I'm curious, what types of things were you hearing from the pulpit? Like what, how was he using his sermons to expose people and control, manipulate the, the group? Yeah. Um, a lot of scripture, (laughs) which is sad to say this was not a Jim Jones, crazy people type of environment this was very bible based we were we thought we were non-denominational is what we would have told people but now that I look back and I have more context of like normal stuff (laughs) um it was fundamentalist southern baptist purity culture you know all the things that go along with that was what it was and and it was it was so scriptural <laughs> that, you know, I, I was memorizing entire chapters of the Bible when I was like five and reciting them. And he used the Bible. And again, this is like what crosses it over from spiritual to religious abuse, mm. that it was just so sin focused. So, you know, you're, you're unworthy of all of this. 
Um, you got to get the sin out of your life. Uh, getting the sin out of your life was like such a big thing. <laughs> blessing. I titled one of my chapters on the blog that obedience brings blessings. Yeah. Disobedience brings consequences. And I think that was like the biggest thing he said all the time, just obey and you get blessings, disobey, mm -hmm. you get consequences. And there's a lot of scripture to back that up. And I was never taught, you know, because it was more in the Baptist vein of whatever Christianity, there was no teaching on the Holy Spirit. There was no teaching on that. Like it was just Jesus is your friend. God is your enemy. And Jesus came hmm. to make peace between you and God. And, wow. and when you raise kids in that environment, I mean, I knew, I knew about hell. I knew about the rapture. I knew about the beast and the mark of the beast and the tribulation when I was like four years old, like it was all taught. And, you know, of course you're going to run to the altar <laughs> to yeah. be saved. And it's just like, that's where it gets a little dicey because that's where it's not, it's not a cult story anymore. And a bunch of people can go, Oh, I was taught that when I was little, of course, like you don't want to burn in hell. And so you, it's like all this focus is on making this decision and getting saved as soon as possible when you're a kid in church. And then from that point on, it's just, at least in this environment, it was just like, prove to us that that was real prove mm -hmm. it, because we're going to wow. constantly question it. And, wow. you know, he would, he would yell and degrade kids that came down to the altar more than once, you know, like, Oh, what's the matter with you? You're not sure of your salvation. I shouldn't see the same people coming down here every week, but then he would use the whole sermon to make you question your salvation. And so you don't, I didn't know what to do. Like, and, and underneath all of that, I had this pure heart, this mm -hmm. super pure heart that just loved Jesus and wanted to do whatever he wanted me to do. Um, but the voice of God was coming from him and yeah. it was unquestioned. So it's no wonder that you just become miserable in that environment. Right. What a confusing place to be for a kid mentally. Yeah. Like yeah. how incredibly tormenting is right. that it paradigm? Sounds, it, it sounds so gaslighting over and over. Oh. Like, this is your reality. Oh, I believe that. No, that's not really your reality. Like you're right. safe. Oh, no, you're not. Like, what do you mean? Right. Like, right. Your heart is desperately wicked. You can't trust your intuition. You can't trust pleasure. You can't trust any of that. Yeah. And yet you're supposed to go out on the road and preach that you're like transformed and new in Christ, mm. but it, it doesn't make sense. And it's just Have faith, but don't trust your faith. Right. Right. Yeah, it's tor it's literally torture in your mind. Yeah. And nobody can help you because at least not in that environment because they're all being tortured simultaneously. Yeah. So nobody can help each other and anybody that would have the presence of mind in this ministry to be like this teaching is extremely abusive and bad. Yeah. It was so convenient for him to fire them, but nobody would have heard what they said. We just right. knew well, they got fired. And then we got the story from him about what happened and you, and you believed it. So it, it demonized the people that questioned him and it demonized the people that claimed he was unhealthy. Yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> the people that question him are, are unhealthy. So I, one, I can't question him, but also the only people that question him are 
are evil. So he must be that good. Yeah, right. And that's all subconscious to, to the point where I didn't even think to question him. It wasn't right. that I was wrestling with questions yep. ever. I was just confused. Yep. I was just, and of course, because I subconsciously knew what happened to people that questioned him, I didn't even have the thought process to do it. It just, I just believed it. And, and anytime that conflicted and made me miserable, like, of course it would. I thought it was my fault that I was miserable. Yep. And I thought I just probably wasn't reading my Bible enough, despite the fact that I can recite the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow more of it was going to help like more yeah. Bible, more, oh, you're just not ministering to people enough or, oh, your heart's just not in the right place. Like that's what another big thing that was always said, your heart, your heart's not in the right place. Mm. If you want to, you know, as I mean, kind of towards the end, like just when I had started to have kids there and I didn't want to travel on the road anymore, it was, your heart's not in the right place. That motherly instinct to be with your family is wrong and you need to get that right. Or otherwise you might be out there with the other people that, and it was also painted as a child to me that like everyone that had left was like people on the ark, like fingernails scratched, oh. <laughs> let us back in. And God had been like, no, you, question the man of God so you don't get to come back and then sometimes families would come back that had left and they looked like lost sad puppies like they looked like people that had been pulled in you know because they were all those poor people like they had been brainwashed and then left and then and the world is hard and the world is doesn't care very much yeah and so they would come back because it was the only safe place where they had been made to feel like they were useful and and it was it was a ministry like a lot of other ministries where you know your housing is paid for and so that kind of also was this undercurrent of like you need me this pastor you know you need me and you should be thankful never mind that you get paid every six weeks a hundred dollars like you should be thankful and never ask for a paycheck because look what we've given to you. Look how God has provided and you have the audacity to ask for more. Like that's how my mind worked as a kid. So and much I thought shame. that's how everybody's mind worked. Yeah, so much oh. shame. And then turning into being ungrateful and yeah. just constantly push. What's that? That's, that's the religious of you. Yeah. It's the added layer of how dare you. Um, yeah. Shame, fear which yeah (laughs) wow I think that paints the perfect picture of what your teen years Mm. evolved to be that is like unbearable no wonder you started struggling so much um Mm. so yeah why don't you share what what the teen seasons looked like more for you yeah so um my family not only are we like a pretty spiritual family. We're also sickeningly musical and um, the Partridge family would always call ourselves. So <laughs> it was not sports, like everything was music. My mom started the music ministry there, which ended up being probably the largest part of the of that whole ministry where singing groups where people would go out kids who had been in the program long enough to be brainwashed kids that had been in the program long enough to want to stay. That's another thing was that it was kind of veiled as a one-year program, but like what really happened was once that kid got to their year, they were pressured, really pressured to stay. 
Um, and again, it was just like, do you want to go out and flip burgers? Or do you want to stay here and serve God? And of course you're like, uh, serve God. Okay. Well then we'll find a place for you in this ministry. You don't have to get paid, but we'll find a place for you. Wow. And so it got to the point where 90% of the staff were program kids and it was designed to be, and then they started, you know, more generations started coming out of that, which wow. But anyway, so the music groups, the singing groups were made up of probably 12 kids from the program who had enough responsibility, who had been saved, been in there for a while that they would then go out on the road and share their testimonies, share their stories um, while singing. And so it was kind of like a program of some songs, testimonies sprinkled in, and then like an altar call and mainly a plug for the ministry to get supporters from wherever we were going. (laughs) So it was all of those things. Um, but to me, I wanted to be a part of that because I love to sing. And so when I was 13, I got put into a singing group and I was the only staff kid in it because, you know, it was it was billed as like, oh, listen to these teenagers tell their crazy stories of redemption and faith and all this stuff. And and I'm like, what do I say? <laughs> like, I, I had a good voice. So I was put in as like the lead singer of the group. But then that meant that I was going to have to start sharing my testimony. And again, like this pressure, I was, now that I look back, I'm like, I was 13. I was a little kid who didn't have that much experience yet as a Christian. But like, I was always like writing these narratives in my head because I wanted a story to share because Mm -hmm. it it was all about your story. And, and he, oh my goodness, he exploited those teenagers, like nobody's business. Like it was all who has the worst story. Sometimes he would make up stories that weren't even true. (laughs) Like he would take Joe from New Jersey who had been abused as a kid and be like, this is Joe from Wisconsin, who was a heroin addict. Like, and Joe had to just stand there going, nodding his head you know, laugh about it afterwards being like, oh, he's like kind of senile. Like, no, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so of course, like I felt like I needed to have this story, but I'm also the kind of person that hates fakeness. So it was very anxiety inducing for me to go out on the road and not feel like I could say the same prepackaged thing. Like I had this abstract story. So in one way it, I mean, it was useful because it taught me how to be authentic and it taught me how to talk and actually say what was going on. Cause all I had to pull from was like, this is what's happening right now. And, you know, first it started out with, uh, I'm no better than these guys, even though I was brought up in church, I'm just as awful as them. So I'm just thankful, <laughs> I'm thankful God loves me and saved me because <laughs> I was going to hell too. Like that was my testimony oh my of, God. I am, I'm so glad that God has showed me that I'm just as wretched as them. And so mm-hmm. you too are wretched and need to be saved. Like that was my testimony. Oh my gosh. Um, and of course I was always used in those years of touring. I was used the most, and I don't mean used by God. I mean, I was weaponized and used to the church kids, um, or to the Christian schools because we would go to everywhere. We would go sing at fairs. We would sing in detention centers, public schools, Christian schools, churches. So there's this huge variety of places that we would go. And I obviously wouldn't share my story in prisons and detention centers, but when it was time to go to the Christian schools, it was me. So I was the one that was supposed to identify with all those kids out there. 
and I did. And I was honest about what I was going through with the, like the bandwidth that I even had yeah. <laughs> to talk about it. But I mean, it's sad to look back and see how many kids I prayed with at altars and told them, you know, that they weren't really saved because they wanted to sleep with their boyfriend or because that's what I was. So it was like all of my theology that was formed by this abusive man was then getting spread out. Yeah. These ordinary people who weren't even in this ministry. And like, here we are, this special group that's come to their school to preach to them. And, you know, we'd have kids weeping at altars, just major responses to our message. Um, And it's so tricky because in one sense, you know, I met my husband in one of those singing groups. And so I saw the reality of him sharing his transformation and the response to, to it. So it's like, I don't want to just say that we went out there and we were just abusing everybody else because I helped a lot of kids. It's just so mixed up. And I started to sense like the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And I am the example of this elite young Christian who's out there doing all this work, but really, I hate myself. Like, really, I can't stand being alone with myself. And I have all these problems, and I couldn't talk to them. And even especially being a staff kid, but I, I've talked to just so many church kids who say, oh, yeah, that's a thing of like the when you're held up as that, you you get pictured by everybody like you're perfect. And that was like intensified by a million mm. at this place because I was constantly raised around program kids who were right. broken and came from really awful places and did things that I didn't even know existed. And they were looking at me saying, you're so lucky to be here. You're so lucky to be here. And they thought that because they had awful life, you know, like, yeah. so it was just constantly reinforced you should be grateful that your family works here you're never gonna have to go through any of the stuff that those kids did because you're in the will of God but that that doesn't work like that and then I became a teenager who had all kinds of body issues because I was also um a dancer and studied classical ballet forever so you know just that whole stereotype is totally true of mm-hmm. ballet dancers that you're in a room in a leotard and tights all day mm-hmm. looking at yourself and critiquing yourself and wow. so it's normal to go through those issues but when you're in that environment and you've been told all this time that you're not going to have any issues because you're in the will of God mm-hmm. you don't know what to do and my biggest fear was always that and I even had friends that were also staff kids. And once they started to go through their own crap of teenagers, their yep. parents put them in the program. Oh, wow. oh my God. So that was always the unspoken fear of staff kids. If you oh, get yeah. too messed up, you're going in there. Like you won't even live at home. Wow. You'll be in there. And so what was it? I didn't know what to do. And I just went through it all by myself and, and mm-hmm. went through eating disorders and, and self-harm even though I and that's again the religious abuse because you start to do all these coping mechanisms you don't know what else to do but the guilt that comes along with those coping mechanisms is unimaginable I as you're just talking it's I can't help but feel the weight of that little kid 
Yeah. Um, your pastor who you respect and fear is saying, I've given you all of this, be grateful. But internally, you're feeling that shame and condemnation that you're not supposed to be feeling. So now you're shaming and condemning yourself for not for not being so grateful for all the things that you're getting. And then these program kids who on the outside see a safe place that you're living compared to their their problems. And so they're saying, you have a great life, be thankful. But internally, again, you're like, but I'm not grateful, I'm struggling. I feel this cognitive dissonance. I feel like a fake. I feel this fear and condemnation and shame that I'm not grateful for. And everybody's telling me I should be. So again, must be it's my problem. Right. Must be I'm the issue that I just can't be grateful enough. Yeah. And must be I'm doing something wrong because God's not even giving me the strength to be grateful or the grace to to love these people because or love myself. Mm. Like, now everybody's against me right. because I am so broken I can't be happy. Right. And then I'm taught with the sh- shame and condemnation. I'm always wrong. So I'm yes. looking at every action I'm doing. But how does that not transfer to looking at your body and saying, okay, I'm not perfect. Wrong. Yeah. I, I'm like that, that critiquing of everything around you. How does that not, because so internally, internal. internally, you're already self-condemning, self-critiquing. How does that not externalize to yeah. my body of, okay, well, they look like this. I look like this. They're doing this. I'm doing this. So it's got to be my problem. Yeah. I can't, like, the years of that building up and stacking on top of each other, I can't imagine what Mm. that 13-year-old was feeling. Mm. And at the same time, the perseverance and strength of that little girl as she is walking obediently day after day okay god i'm going to be your servant today (laughs) okay god i'm willing to be put on the altar even though my understanding what the altar really is is skewed i'm still willing to sacrifice this for you because i do love you god i do want to honor you i do want to serve you The, the amazingness of that little girl but also, I can't help but get this picture of, of God looking over you and saying, but Mary, you don't have to do that for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not asking you to do this. Yeah. But you couldn't hear it because of the religious abuse, the spiritual abuse. Of, yeah. No, God, you don't know best. He right. Basically, he does. Right. Like, I, I know he knows best, so I'm going to sacrifice more for you. And he's like, right. I already did it. Yeah. Just, huh. And that... Again, the cognitive dissonance, the the relational dissonance of, of God, that you couldn't hear him saying that truth because he wasn't safe. Right. He was just a, he was just your pastor. So you had this fear, I can imagine, a fear and distrust of him because he he was just mad at you too. Oh yeah. It could be any anything at all that would it was like the slipperiest surface to grow up on. Mm-hmm. And it was even worse because I think my family was a founding family and they were, oh. we had such close ties that I, I just believed that he loved me. Like, oh. I just believed that 
He loved look, look me different. so much. Yeah, I never ever questioned him, even when it became clear as with me being a teenager that he had something out for my family. Like he nearly ruined my brother's life. I mean, the, the target that was on my poor brother's back because my brother, it, what, I don't know. I don't know if the religious, if it was worked the same way in his mind, because there are some personalities who are like, I'm leaving as soon as I possibly can. Like that was my brother. He was gone when he graduated, like he was gone. And I, it like the religious abuse was just like, I can't leave. Like if I leave, that's the end. Like that will be the last step to me being, being like a reprobate where there's literally no hope for me, Wow, no hope out there. And so like he, my brother had the wherewithal to at least rebel, but even mm -hmm. that I saw it as a rebellion. I yeah. saw his leaving and, you know, we, we treated him pretty badly once he left because mm -hmm. we, you know, it was all his fault. It was all, you can't, you can't even see it. And it's just very concrete thinking of this is right. This is wrong. Yeah. And so if this is right, I have to do this. This is wrong. So I can't do this. Mm. Right. Right. And that's all upheld by Bible verses. Right. Again. And yep. I don't have anything against the Bible, but <laughs> I have a lot against it being used yeah. like that because yeah. there were so many, I mean, he would preach constantly, obey your parents in the Lord for mm. this is right. Yeah. And he taught us that your parents in the Lord was him, <laughs> that it, that meant that you need to honor and obey your spiritual leaders more than your biological parents. And of course, there was a whole room full of program kids who had been violently abused by their parent, you know, so they're taking it hook, line and sinker of, oh my gosh, you're right. You do have what's best for me. And for me, it was, I can't trust my parents. Yeah. I, I, and I, I wrote in the blog too. I remember being nine, nine and telling my dad that if we ever left the ministry, I would hate him. I would hate him and that I would try to live with my pastor. So this is like the depth of the brainwashing. Yeah. I will do whatever I can to stay with this man, yeah. no matter what. And, yeah. and I mean, my parents also would say, I would say, what happens if the, if, we, if the ministry goes under, like what, what happens if like this all got taken away and they would say, we would just follow him wherever he goes. Like he knows best wow and because he's given them this wonderful opportunity to serve the lord and it's like now looking back i'm just like mm, there was a third option there there was, there was a third option <laughs> there was an option where you could have we all could have served god and he could have been held accountable and like yes. we, could, we could have helped kids and he could have been held accountable yeah and just like yes now but in the middle of it it um yeah. um when I was reading your story, I couldn't help but put myself in your parents' position too and think like, what a what a awful thing to like want to parent your children well and want to lead them, but know that the covenant you've pretty much made in blood is yeah. you abdicate your parenting roles to this man. Right. And that's just what you've agreed to. If you don't do that, you're out. So they right. almost had to like sacrifice you guys in a sense um, so that they could keep doing the ministry and yet they, they loved you and they wanted to care for you. Um, right. Tell that story if you, if you would, 
about the when you got the consequence of the word carrying <laughs> yeah so the corporal punishment that was used in this ministry was if you got into trouble this originally was for program kids only that their punishment for whatever it might be there were again this is kind of normal in like a boarding school situation where you can get a write-up or a demerit or like something and those build up you get like a, a punishment for it and so every morning we would have chapel and this was like literally everyone in the entire ministry is required to be at chapel like you you don't choose not to like you're coming and you're gonna sit here at 8 a.m listen to him give a devo or other people give devos and then there would be write-ups after that where we all sat and listened to them being read in front of a whole room so like everything was dealt with publicly so much public shaming it was like ridiculous absurd um but he would read off these write-ups and then dole out punishments and the punishment was the wood pile so it was a it was a pile of wood it was the wood, big surprise the wood pile, was a pile of wood. but it was um kind of like a circular driveway at least for the girls there was a circular driveway and a big pile of big chunks of wood and you would have to carry it in a circle and there would be like a line of kids just walking like prisoners so it could be 10 15 kids out there for hours at a time and you carried the wood and then you'd drop it and you'd walk around without it for one lap and then you'd pick it back up and you know because it was merciful like that so that was like and I'm raised of course not really even understanding that like most kids don't grow up with that like going on around them so I just feared the wood pile like and then when I got into my teen years that's like when I said some parents would put their kid their staff kids into the program or or a little bit less crazy than that they would give their staff kids the punishment of woodpile and my parents never did that like they never ever ever would have disciplined my siblings and I with the woodpile because it was so shameful and I watched my staff kid friends when their parents would actually put them on the woodpile and it was like it was so shameful and horrible but then when I got to be into, oh, maybe 15, 16, the pastor started giving staff kids woodpile. So it was like the staff kids were starting to get written up by the staff people, um, just like the program kids. Like there was no, there started to be no difference between kids that had been sent here to do a program and mm -hmm. kids who grew up with their parents working here. Yeah. And it was my generation that got the worst of it. And so by the time I was 16, they did away with the staff kids school and all staff kids that were in high school went, went to school with the program kids in the main program school room. And up until that point, admittedly, I definitely had the reputation of being a goody two shoes. And, you know, I didn't eat in the cafeteria because I had a house where I could go get lunch and it, the food was nasty there. Like it whole side note, it was all rotten and outdated. And that was another, like, be grateful for your rotten food. It's free. And so like, I'm like, I'm not eating this. I'm going to go home and eat. But of course my whole life of that from zero to 15, I was branded. This, this girl thinks she's better than us. Cause I, I also didn't interact a lot with the program kids. So then I was forced to go to school in a room with them and just walking in there, you know, you can feel I think I went in with maybe two or three of my friends and it was like, 
they hate us. <laughs> like, we are not welcome here. We're like, we're being thrown to the wolves. And so I was put into there and then I was basically just, I was one of them. And I'm not even to say them, like they were worse than me, but I thought they were worse than me. Like I honestly was a goody two shoes and I thought I was better than everybody else. And so getting in there and, and, you know, again, there was just this weird target on me and anybody who was a close friend of mine. So I got, um, the first time I got woodpile was with my staff kid friends. Um, we were all 15 or 16 and I went over to my friend's house. My brother came and he brought his friend. So it was mixed genders together. <laughs> and of course this was totally forbidden. It was dicier with staff kids though. Cause we were obviously, we, we had time outside ish of the, so like I had friends that were guys and fine but like within the program and the rules of the program there was no mixing between girls and boys so I went over to my friend's house and we were hanging out on a trampoline outside and we decided to play truth or dare how dare we (laughs) Uh, and it was like the most innocent thing ever and then my one friend said some suggestive thing of like I don't even remember honestly it was something that was probably a little inappropriate but like, of course, normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and then we all kind of just parted ways or whatever. And then one of my friends told us a program girl about it. And she went to her Dean and the Dean went to the pastor and nobody went to our parents at all. It just went from a program kid to the, to the pastor himself. And he held this big, huge meeting. I actually got out of it because I was on a singing trip when it happened. <laughs> so I was like, spared thank god because I don't think that my fragile heart like could have handled that like my heart to please and my desire to be good because I've always just wanted to be good like I just want to do the right thing and I want to be good and I think that god knew that I needed to not be there for that so I was on a singing trip just doing my thing when I got word that everybody knew about our trampoline truth or dare (laughs) night and you know of course like the fear that just this dread my life is like over and I heard that my two friends that we were at their house got 10 weeks of woodpile 10 weeks of what was called no level so that meant that from 5 to 6 a.m every day and from 2 30 to 4 30 every day they were going to be driven over to the campus hallwood with the program kids there was no getting out of it and this was from the pastor this wasn't from any of the, the parents and i they must have thought their hands were tied so my two best friends got 10 weeks of no level my brother and his friend got five weeks of no level and their driver's license is taken away by the pastor and I somehow came off barely scathed with two weeks of no level, probably because I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. I just want to do the right thing. And they were like, well, shouldn't have been there. And, you know, you should have known better. You should have held them accountable. This is all your fault, really, because if you're the one that wants to do right, you should have spoken up. And so mm-hmm. you're going to halt two weeks. So my parents, I, it, again, people aren't going to understand because they weren't there, but it, it wasn't even presented as an option that they could defy the pastor because if they did, we would get fired. So Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I remember my mom crying with me the first night that I had to go over there and I knew that I was going to get ridiculed by the program because here I am, Mary Siegfried, who is like held up as this person on a pedestal that has it all, has this great life. And, and then the kids that were on the wood pile were generally pretty naughty, like in the program. So you can imagine their delight to see me placed equal with them. Yeah. Which, you know, I wasn't above them or anything, but I just remember my mom. It's like, I can't even imagine what, cause now I'm a parent and like, I don't know what it must've felt like, but I just, I remember her saying, I'll come walk it with you. Like mm-hmm. I'll walk around the wood pile with you. Like I don't have any control. And I was just like, no, like, I'm not going to be the one whose mom walks, you know, like I need to do this and be strong. And of course that whole time I am thinking, how could I have let my friends say these things? Like the depth of the brainwashing was that I was not even bitter at my pastor. I thought I really screwed up. Like I really messed up. And now I have to do the last thing in the world that I ever want to do. And I have to be monitored by kids that are in the program that have been here for three months. They're sitting here watching me with a clipboard taking like, (laughs) and so that was the first time it happened. And it, it, I mean, we made the best of it and I can still look at back at times that my friends and I were just like, this is what it is that we're going to be doing this. And so you get through it and I tried to confess all of my sins while I was out there and thinking of, you know, how I was never going to let this happen again. And, and then it happened again when I was 17 and I, or no, maybe 16, I was in school and I had, I had rushed through something in my schoolwork and I, I didn't even know that I had been accused of cheating until I had a write up in my face and my principal telling me, you're going to serve two weeks in all level. And this time I was alone and I didn't have any of my friends with me. And I, like, I was never asked for my side of the story. My parents were never consulted before, you know, the gavel was thrown. And that one was even worse. Like that one, I think like broke off major pieces of something to me. But again, I never blamed anybody. I just thought I, I, I'm a big fake. Like I'm just a, I'm a huge hypocrite. And at that point, like, that's where I was just like, in a really, 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 really bad place, really bad with literally no one to talk to about it. And I kept a journal that was horrible. And I just because I've always written, obviously, I'm a writer. And so in those days, it just it was so dark and suicidal and awful. And my mom found my journal um, because she went looking for it or looking for something. Cause I think she felt helpless too. And she knew that I was like in a spiral, but not even in a rebellious spiral, like my brother or like, you know, it was like, she might kill herself. Like she's, she's not, but even that I would never have, because I knew the repercussions of that. So it was mostly just self-harm. Like I just, it helped to be honest. It was, something and in my food intake and all of that it was like the only thing that I could actually control and so she found that journal and even that confrontation was bad because 
and I don't fault her because I just know that she was terrified. Like what yeah. parent wants to find that? And yeah. I think she was just so afraid that it just almost inflamed like what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Everything. Like I, it, I don't know which way to go or what to do. And, and at the same time, I'm out touring full time, sharing my testimony, praying with people. And it was just like, that could not keep going like that. Like there just had to be something. The cognitive dissonance was getting too big. Too big. Like, I don't want to be fake, but I can't share this with anybody. I want to be loved, but I'm wrong to want to be loved this way. Right. I'm the, I'm just wrong. Right. And I can't tell anybody that I'm wrong because then I'd get punished. Right. <laughs> right. All the wrong and that my, I am. My parents never punish. I think I have some bad memories of that confrontation about the journal, but only because I was so embarrassed and like, I was so embarrassed <laughs> because like, no, but I'm, I'm also a really good performer, an amazing performer. And so over and over in my life, people are just like, what? We never would have thought because, you know, you paint this picture of this kid with this heaviness and this, that's not what I looked like. Like I was doing all the things I was ministering. I was, you know, giving devotionals. I was doing my best, which is pretty good. Like my, my best is really good. And so it just, it worked against me. And so just kind of, I think that it was my mom first that was just like, you got to tell me everything because Mm -hmm. we had no idea. And, Mm -hmm. and by the time we got an inkling of the idea, the buildup was just so much that I would just sit in silence and she would just say, you have to say something. And I would just be like, I, I don't even know how to say it. I don't even know how to say that I have an eating disorder. Like I, it couldn't come out of my mouth much less talking about cutting myself. Like that was, and I still am like, it's, it's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. Like, it's just like, that is a failure. I would, I would have interpreted it as like, I, and I can't, and I, I had all this weight in the balance of like, if I come out and tell everybody, this is what I've been doing. I'm going to be taken off the road. I'm not going to be able to travel. What will I be? Like all of my, my identity was a servant of God. Like my identity was a minister, a blah, blah, blah. So if I was real about what I was going through, the lie that was in my head was that that will all be taken away from you. But it wasn't a lie because I watched it happen to people all the time. I watched people be stripped of their leadership. I watched kids that had gone through the program, risen through the ranks, become junior staff, which was the level right below regular staff. So they would be junior staff. They've been there for five years. They went on a home visit and went and saw Harry Potter and then came back and were put on no level. Everything's stripped away. You're not in that ministry anymore. You're nothing. And so like, of course, I'm just like, I can't talk about what I'm going through. The cost right. is so high. Like, yeah. so, uh, so the isolation is yeah. unbelievable. Did you also feel like the ministry... Like you have to perform and do it because maybe sometime, someday, like I'll get God's favor and this weight will go away. Hmm. Mm, no, I would say the favor 
was contingent upon serving. So it was like, if you're doing it, you have the favor okay. now, but mm -hmm. if you stop, it's gone. Okay. So it was like, I just believed that I, I had to be there and I had to be doing that because that's where the blessing was. That's where the umbrella of the will of God was. And it was just, so it was like, I have his favor, but it's so easy to lose. Yeah. It's so religious teaching that you can lose your salvation that you can. And it was tricky because he would say like once saved, always saved, but then he would tell teenagers that, wanted to not continue and, and leave and go home after a year that they were going to be dead in a ditch from an overdose in a week. So you're just like, wow, once saved, always saved. But I can also just like become a reprobate, like the word reprobate is such a much used word of just like, it can all go away. And that's contingent on your surrender and your mm -hmm. level of obedience to what we thought was God or what yeah. I thought was God, but it was really that man and everything he wanted from me. And I loved him like I loved God, which is wow. crazy dangerous. Yeah. <sighs> I see this little girl who, I just see her brilliance, little Mary's brilliance of, you learned the system. You were in a system that taught you the top matters. Yeah, they talked about the heart, but just that it was wicked and evil and deceptive above all else. And you couldn't trust it. They didn't, when you're in a system that's so void of emotional health and not even was it like neutral, it was, it was sick. Yeah. It was so dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Everything is just behaviorism. You're performing on this outside level of, of doing and internally you're dying. Like you were doing exactly what they wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. You were performing in every way, singing, mm -hmm. dancing, um, your, your way of staying above, you know, reproach, being this mm -hmm. godly little girl who did all the right things and obeyed and submitted and blah, 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 blah. That's what you were supposed to do. Like, that's exactly what they wanted you to do. No one really cared, not no one, but yeah the leader didn't didn't care about hearts like your heart was dying it was being yeah. suffocated but on the outside you were still delivering you yeah. were you were just going for it mm -hmm. and so I mean I just see that and I like I'm amazed by her to have that kind of resilience in yeah. such a oppressive environment but I also completely see why she started to fall apart right. because that is impossible you to live that way. Yeah, it's not human. It's not human. Right. You were like a robot. Yeah. It, uh, even, and it's, it happened more for me than that's also kind of the hard part now is that there are just not a lot of people literally who can identify with me fully. Right. Um, even other staff kids, like it just seemed like the worst of the worst happened when I fell into those years of being a teenager. And it happened to all of my other close friends that were there with me, but none of them had been there since birth. So mm -hmm. it's not even quite the same, but you know, they came when they were left still really detrimental times to get into that environment. Mm -hmm. But even like my sister, she's seven years older than me. Um, 
and she she dated the pastor's son for a very long time so she was kept relatively safe <laughs> she was okay. i mean there's still all the religious craziness but she wasn't as tortured as i was like it it was a sick pleasure for this man to torture me i know it 100% it was a sick twisted thing and and the things in my parents' marriage that he, like, I, it really was his pleasure to tear my family to shreds. And he, and he did like to, from, to the naked eye, things were bad. Things were really bad. By the time I was like 17, my parents married, I wrote about that in the blog of him, this pastor pulling my sister and I into a meeting with him and telling us that our parents were probably going to get divorced and that, we could call him dad. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, that didn't really happen to many other people that were there. So it's like, I know that a lot of church kids can identify and I know that a lot of other staff kids can identify, but there's such a small handful of people yeah. and I've heard from them, which is amazing. And, and they all always say the same thing. I thought I was crazy. Like, mm -hmm. I thought I was insane. Thank you for saying these things mm -hmm. because, and that might be the biggest thing that I struggle with to this day is feeling mentally ill, yeah. <laughs> you know, unstable and absolutely yeah. crazy. Like I don't deserve to be out walking around people. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to put me away. Cause I'm nuts. Like that would be yeah. the biggest thing that still happens now. Um, but the lack of people to identify like, with, yeah. Um, it's hard. Yeah. Do you think your the proximity to him created more uh, abuse, essentially? Like because yeah. you were that inner family? Yeah, probably. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.